I think we've got to a place now, you know, at a society level where we fear our bodies. Mm. I think we, we live in fear of things going wrong. I think we also live in a society where we don't deal with uncertainty well at all. In everywhere else, we certainty is so easy to find. The internet has made certainty easy to find. You know, a mm. quick Google search provides answers for most things. If we order a taxi on Uber, we can see exactly where the taxi is at any any mm. point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Just Eat gives us kind of updates about when our order <laughs> yeah. is, when it's being processed. We we are so used to certainty, and I've, uh, there's probably something very primal in our brains that enjoys that. But when it comes to our bodies, there's huge amounts of uncertainty. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Thomas Micklewright, a real-life GP talking to me on the show. How exciting. Um, no, I was really excited to have Tom on the show. Um, but I think maybe it seems unlikely, I don't know, maybe, for a, a GP um, a medical a Western medicine doctor to to be on a podcast like this, perhaps. Although, like I know, this isn't that kind of out there um, and woo as some podcasts can be. But you know, it's in that realm of like alternative health, holistic health, and everything. And that's you know the work that I do, um, which is partly why I wanted to bring Tom on. And we chat about that. We chat about the relationship between um, holistic health, alternative practices, and Western medicine, and what that relationship might look like in the future just kind of like have an honest chat about where we are with it and what we think and and what we think might look good and we talk about the doctor-patient relationship and what that's like at the moment especially with things like new technology kind of um, making patients more informed and we chat about eco-anxiety and make sure you stick around until the end of that chat because um, Tom shares some really uh, alarming facts perhaps um, and then afterwards he shares ways that we can start to take action and things we can do so do stick around. Just a quick reminder as well that spaces are now available for my women's weekend retreat which is happening this June at the lovely Gathering Fields which is in Lancaster it's in a really nice part of the north up here in the north of England in beautiful countryside um, so that's a whole weekend Friday the 12th to Sunday the 14th of June we'll be doing lots of yoga meditation sound healing there's an Ayurvedic chef who will be cooking every meal for us all your food is provided all your accommodation and you get to spend some time just soaking in beautiful nature and reconnecting to yourself to others, to the natural world. So if you feel like you would like to join me on that, details are on my website, being-change.com. There's an early bird deal. If you book your space by the 20th of March, then the full price is £255. If you book after that, it's £288. And it's a 50% uh, deposit that you need to secure your space. So let me know if you're interested in coming. Let me know, of course, if you've got any questions, and I'm happy to answer those for you. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode and my interview with Dr. Thomas Micklewright. Hello and welcome to Create Shift. My name's Ellen Carr. As well as being the host of this podcast, I'm a writer, a yoga teacher, and a holistic living mentor. This podcast is here to support, encourage, and inspire you to live your most purposeful and holistic life. The conversations had, questions asked, and thoughts presented are here to awaken that whispering of your soul your own questions about the life you want to lead and to give you the confidence that you can create the shift you want to make in your life. I believe that the way to true health and happiness, individually and collectively, is to live a truly holistic life. A life that 
is driven by a purpose that feels true and right to us, and that helps us to feel connected to ourselves and each other and the world around us, and that leaves us feeling fulfilled and content. I release a new season of the show in line with the change in the seasons in nature, so normally you'll find a new season coming out around the solstice or equinox time. Each season has a couple of solo episodes as well as interviews with lots of interesting and thought-provoking guests. Thank you so much for being here. I really hope that you enjoy listening to Create Shift. If you do enjoy the show, I would love it if you would be happy to leave a rating or a review or both. You can do that on iTunes if you listen via the Apple Podcasts app. It's super easy. Otherwise, you can go onto iTunes, search Create Shift and leave the review on there. I'd love to carry on the conversation with you. You can find me online at being-change.com and you can find me on Instagram at being underscore change. Hey, hi, Tom. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you. Um, let's get started with the first little intro question that I ask everybody. Um, so because we are currently in the season of winter, can you tell me what your favorite thing or things are about winter? Yeah, well, a pleasure to be on here, Alan. I think my favorite thing about winter's got to be the coziness. Mm. I imagine you and your listeners have probably heard of the phrase hygge. Yeah. And I absolutely, I think winter's like the most hygge month, right? It's yeah. all about blankets and scarves and hot drinks and coming in from work and just getting snuggled up on the sofa and, you know, with your nearest and dearest. So I think it's that, it's, it's the warm coziness. Yeah, and it's acceptable to put your pajamas on at like 4 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, you get away with a lot in winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. I love I love that concept of fuga. I've got a couple of books on it, and it's like even just the pictures are great. Like, and, and the books do go through all the seasons, but it is it's winter. It's like autumn winter when it gets dark, and you can put candles on and fairy lights and stuff. So uh, exactly, yeah. and like um, you know, like like fireplaces, you just can't. You know, it's yeah. weird when they put a fireplace on in the middle of summer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's stuff like stews and, yeah. you know, all those like really, I mean, I'm a big carb addict. <laughs> <laughs> I love carbs. So winter's a great chance to just have those like mm. really stewed foods that make you feel great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes you feel good and it's, it's good for us at that time of year. So perfect. Um, so would you like to um, introduce yourself a little bit to everybody listening? Yeah, so my name is Tom McElwright. I'm a, a GP, writer, speaker, and I'm a specialist in digital health. Um, I've been working as an NHS doctor for over seven years now, and I'm becoming particularly interested, uh, as well as digital health, in this kind of a mental health space, I guess, and thinking about other ways in which we can improve our health beyond just going to the doctor and getting medications. I see a lot of patients who their their needs aren't met by that model at aren't mm. met by that model alone so i think it's important that we start thinking about other ways we can really start improving their health mm. can you um talk about that last point a little bit more than that that thing about the the certain patients whose needs aren't met by the current model sort of the gp model alone um yeah just expand on that a little bit yeah sure thing so um, so I, in, in, as a GP, we're seeing more and more what we call functional illness. And functional illness is basically the, the nicer way of saying illnesses that we don't really totally understand what's going on, but where there doesn't seem to be a very clear biological process driving it. 
Um, perhaps one of the commonest examples of a functional illness is irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. IBS, um, affects a huge mm-hmm. number of people. But we, we don't totally understand the underlying mechanisms. It's clear that there's something that happens between the, what we call the brain and gut access, the way the brain and the gut interact, um, which might be why stress, anxiety, depression are all kind of associated mm. with it. But ultimately, if we were to you know, take a, a small sample of somebody's bowel who had irritable bowel disease, we're not, we're not going to see any abnormalities. Not mm. in the same way if we looked at someone who had ulcerative colitis mm. or celiac disease, you know, and we'd be able to see those changes under a microscope. So we're seeing, but beyond that, we're also seeing a number of other syndromes that are coming through that we, we don't totally understand either. And again, you might have heard chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. fibromyalgia, chronic pain syndromes, a lot of these illnesses where there's not a discrete test we can do for it, there's not something we can look under a microscope and confirm it, and it's probably the, a complicated interplay of somebody's, uh, somebody's mental health, their physical health, um, their, I guess their, their social health, and their social environment, and the role that illness plays in their, in their life narrative. I think all of those things probably come come together to, to, you know, lead to some of those illnesses. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, you know, these these um, functional illnesses that you're listing are all things that I, I read and study a lot about within my kind of sphere of working with within yoga, but also mainly within like the holistic health kind of sphere and the work that I do with Ayurveda and kind of other holistic health practices. So that's something that I wanted to, to talk to you about. Um, and kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have to have you on I guess is um you know you're a GP and and sort of it seems like almost where society would put us perhaps at sort of opposite ends of a spectrum um and kind of I want to I think the future is sort of bringing those together and um yeah let's talk about that a little bit and I know that you've got a blog post that you wrote about that um um and about the complications with that, especially, um, and I know you were responding to a, um, a, a film that you watched. So, um, yeah, let's chat about that a little bit more, kind of um, how do you view that sort of holistic health sphere or um, the possible intersection between um, Western medicine and and those kind of practices? Sure. So, I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying I think my interest in this probably came from the fact that my, my parents are both slightly different ends of of the spectrum of this argument, mm. really. Um, my my mum's a lot more on the alternative end of the spectrum. You know, when I grew up in a household with burning essential oils and, you know, crystals yeah. and um, various different therapies, mum would, mum would kind, of, kind of try out. Uh, whereas my dad was much more, uh, I guess, I guess scientific, sceptical, atheist, um, a, a bit more straight down the line. So I had kind of these these conflicting views. And although I went down the medicine route, I suppose perhaps I was a little bit more open-minded. And certainly the more mm. I've come across things like those functional conditions I listed, I've really appreciated the limitations of Western medicine. There isn't uh, The truth is there isn't a great deal at the moment that we can do to help people yeah. with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia because we, we don't understand the conditions well enough. And we're coming at it with this very biological model mm. of of healthcare. But the advantage of being a doctor is that we're trained in the scientific method. We're trained to be skeptics. We're trained to ask very specific questions, 
related to what the evidence is, whether the evidence is robust, uh, how thorough that evidence has been conducted. So we are quite good at not taking things at face value, mm. is what I would say. And certainly when I watched that, that documentary I wrote the blog post on, mm-hmm. Heal, mm. I think the thing that came out so loudly with that was the, the lack of scientific rigor. Mm. I really wanted to believe some of the claims that were being made, but I just couldn't. And for me, it's when I start, I think one of the, one of the risks that sector uh, often, often ends up playing into is using complex science, which is poorly understood by the public, to potentially justify mm. some of their explanations for how it works. Mm. So whenever I hear uh, practitioners talking about, uh, about waves or quantum energy, mm. or if they talk about you know, a wealth of evidence, but they're not able to, to drill down into what yeah. that was or, or where it came from, then I guess my, my Dr. Spidey sense goes off <laughs> a little bit. Mm. So I think I think on the whole, the medical profession is not against complementary therapies. And actually, in the NHS, you know, we do recommend uh, acupuncture yeah. for certain types of migraine and chronic headache. We do recommend manual therapy for back pain or yeah. the Alexander technique for, for Parkinson's. So it's not that we it's not that we we think it's nonsense, and, and certainly our approach isn't, isn't intended to seem adversarial. But what we would love is to see some of those therapists applying the, the same the same rigor and, and skepticism, I guess, we do to our our evidence and our therapies. Mm. Mm. And, and I think I think if both sides did that, if there was more of a conversation, I think potentially there would be the opportunity for some of those therapies becoming more mainstream in, in Western healthcare. You only have to look at you know, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness meditation and yeah. how that has taken off massively in the last five to ten years. And I think that's and I think the thing that tipped that was the emergence of evidence showing that yeah. meditation has a range of benefits from improved sleep, reduced blood pressure, reduce incidence of chronic pain. Yeah. Once we started seeing that, you know, it, it was very easy for meditation to become a staple recommendation for a lot of mental health minded doctors Mm, yeah because there's now a lot of studies that have been done on meditation and like um there's been scans of the 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 brains of 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 monks and things i believe um showing sort of different areas and kind of is that that evidence based because we do live in an evidence-based society don't we as well so um, and there are many people um perhaps who might benefit from some of these um alternative um approaches but who wouldn't go go to them because they need to have those questions answered or they need to to feel there's a sense of authority there i guess um um, well i would always say to patients you know whenever a patient comes to me and they ask you know should i try um either homeopathy or or one of the other complementary therapies where there isn't a strong evidence base um i'll always I'll never try and deter them from it mm. because I think actually the the narrative we build around our illness and our belief systems yeah. I think actually impact our experience of illness. Yes. And they don't, I don't think they always impact the illness itself. I think science is still a bit unsure about that. Mm. But it certainly does affect our our subjective experience of the illness. Um, and that's in fact how the how the placebo effect works mm. in, in many ways. So for that reason, if someone strongly believes, you know, a, 
an unproven complementary therapy is going to benefit them. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to dash their hopes because there may be benefits to those hopes. Yeah, but, yeah. What I will do is I'll make them aware of the evidence base and whether it's there, whether it's not there, or whether the jury's out. And yeah. at least they feel, at least they feel informed, and they're not quite as at risk of you know being duped by some of the the less ethical practitioners out there. Yeah, and that is. Um... That is that what you just said about the sort of that question of ethics within the practitioners. It's it is a, it's a problem in that field because even yoga isn't regulated really, um, and you know I think there's, there's two different camps on that. Um, but I think it's problematic. Um, but they've started to try and do that with different bodies and stuff like the British Wheel of Yoga and the Yoga Alliance certifying um, programs. But it's not uh, it's not very rigorous. Um, and so you could get, you could very easily get, you know, even within yoga, which is not one of the kind of more out there sort of things that we're talking about, um, you could go to a class and actually be taught by someone who isn't certified at all. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's, that's then problematic. Maybe not, maybe it's fine. But um, yeah, that, that is an issue, I think. I think it's, I think it's totally totally problematic i think it means that those that are you know very legitimately trying to help people and have done you know done the training and the work and heck maybe even the research mm. i think it means that they're you know they're having to unfairly compete uh for for patients for an audience with um, with people who just don't don't have that commitment to to being proper and thorough with their practice mm. and i've heard stories you know it, Without naming specific examples, there are certainly nutritionists out there that have made some extremely bold claims mm. about, um, you know, dietary means of tackling cancer. And for for patients who are in a very vulnerable situation mm. dealing with uh, an illness as serious as that, um, ha- and who are perhaps feeling very desperate and vulnerable, they are, it, it, unfortunately, they're going to play into the hands of some of these more, I guess, aggressive alternative therapists. I remember my... My, going home once to find that my grandmother had put my grandfather on an extremely strict diet has cut out all all gluten dairy uh, all meat um, and he's a he's a frail diabetic man you know so I was I was a little bit worried about what you know an extreme diet was going to do to his diabetes mm. and when I asked why she said well we weren't getting anywhere with his uh, with his with his um his specific illness at the time he was he was having some other other vague complaints mm-hmm. um, he said so i thought it might be allergies and she told me that a neighbor had recommended uh, an allergy tester down the road and i was and i was thinking okay go on and she said uh, and she said yes well so we sat in this clinic we visited him twice it was private um, but it was definitely worth it and I said, okay. And uh, and did he take a blood test? And she said, no. And I said, did he did he um, you know apply anything to the skin, like any any chemicals? And she said, no. And I thought, okay, well that's how we allergy test in, in Western medicine in the NHS. So what's going on here? And she said, uh, apparently my granddad was made to hold uh, a stick that was connected to a little box by a wire, and this practitioner allegedly put different boxes, different smaller boxes inside this larger machine mm. um, and depending on whether a light lit up or didn't light up it was supposed to tell them whether my my grandfather was allergic or not to you know to a particular substance now that it, there is no evidence at all for any kind of testing like that i don't even know 
world was looking at. I don't know yeah. how that was even how they How they thought it was working? Absolute bonkers. But to, to a desperate couple who weren't particularly well-educated in the field of medicine, and, it, well, they were, they were easily taken in. And that could have had very serious implications for my grandfather who struggled with his diabetes for a long time. Mm. So there are, there are very real risks to people making uninformed decisions yeah. with these therapies. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you hear you hear some stories from places, and and also you don't know where you hear stories from or where that story's come through, and how your information's been filtered to get to you in the first place. But you hear some stories about things, not necessarily perhaps like that, because that sounds quite. I don't really understand even how they were thinking that was working. So I don't know. But you hear some stories about other things that maybe I don't know working with. You know, energy or Reiki healers or um, that kind of thing um, and you hear it having like a profound positive effect on people um, or we, we have things coming from from the east where we don't understand it and then and then sort of many years later kind of with acu- acupuncture and stuff there's now been sort of studies to sort to go into that and kind of sort of identify more how that works and why it can be helpful um, uh, and so then you get people saying, well, we need to trust the ancient um, uh, practices and medicine and things, even if they haven't got things to prove them, because many years later, you know, it does get proven. But so you get this kind of juxtaposition, I guess, um, uh, between those kind of two two camps of people saying like all of these kind of things are dangerous or can be dangerous or yeah, some people very extreme just don't don't go near any of that stuff because it's not been proven and it's not the way that Western medicine does things. And other people saying that we just need to trust everything. And it's it's kind of I guess it's like what you said at the start. It's like we need to have some sort of coming together of of the Western medicine and people doing alternative therapies if they want to make them mainstream and they really believe they can help people. Of then like digging into that more. Um, it's, yeah, I I totally agree. Totally agree with that. If you look at you know some of some of the medications we are we are developing now are on the basis of old herbal treatments mm. or uh, you know plant based treatments which previous cultures have used before and, and we're just starting to realize why they work mm. and from what the still useful medications um, I keep, you know, I, I kind of feel like we can i think there's a lot western medicine can learn from the ancient traditions yes. because they they developed for a reason you know a lot of them developed through anecdotal evidence yes. of improvement. And I think we should, rather than ignore that, we should we should investigate it to yeah. see whether whether the benefit is there, just as we have done with you know mindfulness meditation and in some respects acupuncture. And then in return, my hope is perhaps Western medicine by you know offering that that scientific process, that research, perhaps we can find things that the that the ancient cultures didn't know. I mean, it may you know I guess the. The East traditionally believed that acupuncture was about kind of releasing key energy through the body yeah, yeah. By, uh, by kind of opening up channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Western medicine previously thought it was, you know, acupuncture was nonsense. And mm-hmm. actually there's probably a middle ground where yeah. acupuncture is helpful. And perhaps there's, uh, there's an explanation that fits what we, what we now know about the body. And that would be a really valuable place to, to get to, I think, if yeah. we're saying, yeah, these things work. And actually we've got a far better example of, of why from knowing why perhaps we can we can hone and improve things even more yeah yeah um and then on the flip side you kind of want 
um, alternative practitioners to perhaps uh, not have total distaste or disdain for Western medicine, which some do, you know. Um, and I, I, Western medicine's brilliant, you know. Think about the things that that we've achieved and that we can do. It's it's fantastic. And like you know, if you collapse on the floor suddenly. I probably wouldn't be calling, you know, an energy healer. I'd be calling the ambulance. Like, <laughs> um, uh, so it is that it's kind of like a bit more of um, a relationship, I guess, that I, I would like to see um, in the future, I think. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the, the kind of doctor-patient relationship. Um, okay. I just wondered how you would characterize that at the moment like how would you describe it how things are at the moment um what that's like yeah okay i think i begin by saying that the doctor patient relationship is is still really strong which mm-hmm. is fantastic i think there's been a lot of you know bad press about the the nhs in the uk over the mm. last few years but despite that, and despite, you know, waiting times going up, and dissatisfaction going up, by and large, patients still stand by their doctors and doctors will continue forever to stand by their patients. Mm. You know, we, thankfully, we remain one of the most trusted professions along mm. with nurses. I think uh, people still are very, very proud of the NHS. Um, you know, it's amazing the number of, the number of patients who... Uh, who exhibit fantastic patients themselves. You know, I've had, I've had, um, I had a little old lady who I was running so far behind. I'd had to send two patients into the hospital by ambulance in, in one session, one half a day. So by the time I came to this, this old lady, I was about 40 minutes, 40 or 50 minutes late for her appointment. So I apologized profusely. And it was humbling how accepting she was and how grateful she was that she got to see me at all and that she wasn't going to have to pay for any of this and that mm. even after a tough a tough morning I was still going to give her the best care possible mm. and when you hear when you hear patients speaking like that you just think wow we've got something so special here mm. even even if healthcare is becoming a little bit more consumerist in some respects there is something quite sacred about us us recognizing we're all in here all in it together doing the best that we can mm. but i think in terms of how how things are things are starting to change in other respects we certainly start to see patients now coming to their consultations far more informed right okay i imagine you've probably read about you know dr google and heard jokes about, yeah, about yeah, yeah. everyone everyone does it and it's yeah. it's a fact of life now and actually i think it's a good thing I, I quite like it when a patient comes to me and they they you know and they're very honest about what they know what they don't know what they're worried about um, and what they're hoping I can I can help them with you know mm. it, it, it kind of makes my job easier and it means that the doctor's role is changing from being purely about information giving to being a lot more about contextualizing mm. information the patient already has. Mm. I want to ask you a question. Um, I, I just want to see what you think about this um, opinion or something that I've been wondering about. Of course. Um, so I've been thinking or wondering um, if we, we outsource our, 
our health too much, or I don't know if our health is the right word. We or we outsource, um, like we give all of our power around kind of listening uh, or understanding our health and, and what might be wrong with us to to doctors because we trust them so much and they they they, they know a lot, you know, because uh, you know they're still one of the most trusted professions. That we give too much away uh, to the extent that we don't listen to ourselves our own bodies or trust what we're hearing from them what do you think of that i this that's very interesting hearing hearing that coming from you alan i i have a very a very similar very similar opinion okay um and i think i think there's there's damage to that let me start by saying where I think it where I think it comes from. Mm. I think it comes from a. I think it comes from. I think we've got to a place now, you know, at a society level where we fear our bodies. Mm. I think we we live in fear of things going wrong. I think we also live in a society where we don't deal with uncertainty well at all. In everywhere else, we certainty is so easy to find. The internet has made certainty easy to find you know a quick google search provides answers for most things if we order a taxi on uber we can see exactly where the taxi is at any any yes. point in time mm-hmm. um, you know just eat gives us kind of updates about when our order <laughs> yeah. is when it's being processed we we are so used to certainty and I've, there's probably something very primal in our brains that enjoys that but when it comes to our bodies there's huge amounts of uncertainty and a big challenge for doctors is that you'll go to your doctor seeking certainty. And if you see a GP especially, you'll leave with a whole load of uncertainty still. Mm. Western medicine can't always provide certainty. Mm. Perhaps the, the commonest example that I see as a GP is, uh, is patients with, with headaches. Yeah. I think the whenever someone's had a headache that's gone on for a long period of time, perhaps over a week, it's not uncommon for people to start thinking the worst and thinking mm. about brain tumours and the like. Especially if they've been on Google. <laughs> Especially if they've been on Google. <laughs> but, the, but the way medicine is, is as much art as science. You know, as a, as a doctor, it's not just order a test and you prove it. It's about trying to identify patterns, weighing up probabilities, and that's how we and that's how we come to our diagnoses effectively. So a patient will come saying, you know, I've had a headache for a week, and I, I want some kind of scan, you know, to make sure it's not a brain tumor. Mm. And the the thing is, the way the way a doctor works is we will take a detailed history, we'll perform a thorough examination, and on the basis of that, we'll we'll come up with a list of possibilities in order of in order of probability. And what the patient wants me to say is 100%, this is just mm. a migraine. But no doctor can ever say that. I couldn't say that if I, even if I had a scan, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We can say 99.9% chance this is just a migraine. Mm. I can't rule out everything. And I can't 100% rule out the worst. But all I can tell you is I think it's very, very, very unlikely. And in my experience, this is what you should be doing. And if things aren't getting better, then this is this is when you kind of kind of come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think generally people struggle with that. Mm. Um, so I think we I think the reason people go uh, perhaps they don't trust their bodies anymore is because of that fear and because they they are seeking certainty. And yeah. the sad truth is, is even medicine can't provide total certainty. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's really interesting. Thank you. 
Um, all right, let's let's switch um, track a little bit um, because I really wanted to talk to you about eco anxiety because I know you were due to give a talk about this um, at um, kind of like when Extinction Rebellion were doing a lot of their big stuff in London and it, it got called off. Um, and I know that your talk was going to be about how eco-anxiety was the biggest psychological barrier to climate action. Um, so could you talk about that a little bit and maybe touch on some of the things that you were going to touch on in the talk? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. This talk is really, really close to my heart. Um, the, I thought the Extinction Rebellion protests, I know they were, you know, they inconvenienced a lot of people and there was some controversy towards the end yeah, as yeah. factions within that started taking taking action that was perhaps a bit extreme and perhaps targeted the, well, in fact, almost certainly targeted the wrong people, you know, targeted mm. commuters who were wrong to travel in an eco-friendly way rather than the, the politicians who were making the, the yeah. wrong calls. Um, but at an early stage, I'd been invited by a, a separate group, which was a, a Doctors for Climate Action, to do this talk at a, at a health hub there that was sadly cancelled as things started going a bit, a bit more wild with protests. Um, but what I was going to I was going to talk about is I was going to start by saying how, you know, the underappreciated health impacts of climate change and just give you some some figures. I kind of jotted them down just when I was I was having to think about this podcast. Alan. Um, if you think about the well, you only have to look at the wildfires across Australia, yeah, yeah. One, the devastation that it's causing to wildlife, to people, to the economy there, to, to, to life entirely on Australia. But even if you look at the impact of the heat wave we had mm-hmm. in July this year, mm-hmm. you know, we had trains disrupted across the country because tracks were buckling. We had bits of road that were melting. In France, the temperature oh, reached yeah. 46 degrees and there were 800 people that lost their lives in France because of that heat wave. Wow. When you, when you look at the death toll, that's the equivalent of 12 Grenfell Tower fires. Mm caused by by heat waves. And if you go further back, if you go back to to 2003, across Europe, the heat wave then caused 70,000 deaths, which is higher than for Chernobyl or for for the bomb being dropped on Nagasaki. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, phenomenal due to to a heat wave. Um, uh, Last year, I went to a... um, a talk at the Health and Care Innovation Expo in Manchester. And Simon Stevens, the chief executive of the NHS, mm. was there. And, uh, and he told me, the, the, or, or told the audience, a terrifying statistic, which is that 23 people die a week due to air pollution. Yeah, yeah. In Manchester alone. Yeah, it's bad. That's so not even England, the UK, that's, man, that's one city, 23 people a week. So it's, you know, it's not about... You know, oh, we've got to you know save the rainforest, protect the Great Barrier Reef. Um, in, in fact, you know, the sad truth is, particularly with the Barrier Reef, that's 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 already gone. We've mm. we've passed the tipping point now, and there's unfortunately we're probably just going to have to watch that decline now. That's the sad truth. This is really really very much about our our extinction, and mm. I cannot underestimate that. That is how serious it is. Um, but I think the. The thing is, when you start talking about stuff like that, I can feel it now. I don't know if you can as well. Mm-hmm. It's just not in your mm-hmm. stomach. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, God, like that is yes. awful. We're watching a, a disaster movie mm-hmm. and, there, and there's nothing. And, it, and we feel so hopeless. Yeah, yeah. 
the American Psychological Association in 2017, they were the ones that coined the term eco-anxiety. And they called it this this feeling of hopelessness, of despair, mm. and feeling like there is just nothing you can do about the the existential climate emergency. Um, and it's something I think we can all, all kind of relate to. Yeah. But I think it's a good thing. The BBC did an article last last year around the time of the protests. And I think since then, the message has been echoed elsewhere that we're terrifying our children. You know, that actually the message has gone too far and we shouldn't, you know, kids are having nightmares. They're, they're talking to their parents about how worried they are. And, and therefore, we should we should stop talking about it in these kind of dire terms. But I think that is a ridiculous argument frankly i think if we if we're suggesting lying to our mm. children about what we're doing to their future mm. who is it we're trying to make feel better mm. really yeah. is it our children or are we trying to make us feel less guilty about about what we're doing and the inaction we've taken mm. i think that's why it's so useful hearing from from activists like greta thunberg who is very clear that she she doesn't want stories or messages of hope. Actually, what she wants as a 16-year-old schoolgirl is she wants to see panic, and she wants leaders across the world to start acting because because the world is on fire. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a little bit about about eco anxiety. Mm. That's why I think it's a why I think it's a good thing. Um, in the talk, I had kind of had some suggestions for how I thought we could make the most of, of yeah. eco-anxiety. I don't know if you, if there's time to kind of go, go through on, that. Please, yeah. <laughs> Something. So now I can, now I'm feeling anxious. So yes, tell me how to use that. Thank you. Don't <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just leave me. Trembling. Okay. Well, um, well, uh, the, the way to think about this this problem is is, is a form of anxiety. And although eco-anxiety might be a relatively new term, anxiety has been with us for for mm. many, 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 many years. So we've got some concrete strategies for managing anxiety, which I think we can equally apply to this. Mm -hmm. So if you were to come and see me about your anxiety, Ellen, mm. so you're going to step into my, my eco-clinic and okay. lay down right. my, my eco-couch. Um, the first thing I'd say is to is to own the feeling. As a GP, I, I once saw this businesswoman who came in and she was she came to see me because she she thought she was having a form of epilepsy. She yes. was just trembling all the time. She was having these whole body trembling attacks. Um, and I kind of and as, I, as I, we kind of delve in and I examined her and spoke to you, I really got the sense that this was this was psychologically driven, that this was mm -hmm. um, anxiety and panic was causing the, the trembling and nothing biological. Um, she wasn't happy to hear that. <laughs> and she stormed out the room probably to, to report me on NHS choices. Okay. I kind of said, look, just just next time you get in one of these attacks, don't try and don't try and control it and don't freak out about it. Just just let it let it run its course and watch and see what happens. Hmm. Um, and and that was it. That was it. And I thought I wouldn't see her again. But then she did. She came back about two weeks later, and, uh, and the first thing she did was she sat down. She said, "Right, okay, so it's panic. So what are we going to do about it?" <laughs> and I think that just goes to show the the power of not fighting a negative emotion, mm, yes. but actually 
actually just watching it unfold, observing it from a from a you know fr- from a curious perspective, and then once we're in that that kind of objective space, we can say, okay, this is how we're feeling. This is why now we're in a position to act, mm. and that's that's probably the first step I'd say with eco anxiety. The second thing I'd suggest in our our imaginary eco clinic. Mm-hmm is challenging the unhelpful thoughts. And this is a, a fundamental part of cognitive behavioral mm. therapy. When I when I put on Facebook that I'd be going to this talk, I, I naively expected I'd have messages along the line of, you know, great work, like, you know, yeah. you know, you know, glad we're making a change. But actually the the comments were quite negative. And yeah. they were along the lines of, you know, I don't know why you're doing this. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. Um, you know, even if the UK cuts its emissions, there's nothing we can do with China and the US polluting. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody cares enough to change. We're all doomed. That, like, it was really, yeah, yeah. really thinking. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, we call this all or nothing thinking, mm. black and white thinking. And it's, it's, it's not helpful. We've, we've we've all experienced that it, you know if you've ever tried to tried to diet what do we do we don't we never kind of say okay well you know I'll I'll, I'll make these small changes maybe I I wouldn't have an extra slice of toast for breakfast or you know I'll make sure I only have this in to snack in the evenings instead we set these huge mm. goals don't we you know, uh, yeah. you know I'm gonna you know, as a guy I'm gonna drop down like four waist sizes ready for that wedding in a month and, it's, and, yeah, and then yeah. what happens don't eat it we fail we feel rubbish about ourselves we give up and that's kind of all or nothing yeah. thinking as well so the, the way to address that all or nothing thinking is to look for uh, is, is is to challenge it with examples of where where it does work and how it does work so for instance this argument taking the the argument of the uk can't do anything because mm-hmm. because you know the us and china are, are two heavy polluters well look at other big movements across across the world the abolition of slavery that started in the uk not in the states if you look at female enfranchisement so women getting the vote that began in new zealand then australia then finland and it was 20 years before women got the vote in the us Mm. if you look at gay marriage it was the netherlands that did that first 14 years before the us and you know each of those things now is so widespread you know, there is still room to go with a lot of it, um, especially kind of gay gay marriage. But um, but there's been so much progress made on those things, and they didn't have to start with the biggest countries first. Yeah. And then this attitude of you know nobody cares, or I'm too small to make a difference. Mm-hmm. If this 16 year old girl can get schools across the world protesting, you know, there, there really are no excuses. We've just got to got to step up and act. Yeah, I, yeah. People, I hear that negative thinking all the time um, when I have conversations with people. Um, like, what can I do? And also, I do kind of think it's a way of um, letting yourself off a bit. Yeah, yeah, it is. It gets us gets us off the hook. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. You know, I can't do anything. It's all up to the big people. The government doesn't care, so why should I? Um, I would say if you hear people, if you hear people exhibiting that kind of thinking. What they need is your help to yeah. prove that it's not true. And yeah. the best way you can do that is by by giving them examples. And you're free to use the ones that, that I gave then. Yeah. You know, show them show them that it's just not the case. Yeah, yeah. And 
eventually that that fallacy, that fixed belief they have in their mind, it, it just won't be able to stand up and hopefully they'll start to change. Yeah, I am. Um, I always think of that quote. I don't know if you've heard it. I've just pulled it up. It's by Margaret Mead. That never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I think that yeah. sums that up, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or another one. <laughs> another one is the the one that's credited to the Dalai Lama, which is if you think it's too small to make a difference, try sleeping in the room with a mosquito. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think just to wrap up this this bit about yeah, yeah. anxiety. I think the final thing, yeah, and a, a kind of the final thing that we try with with actual anxiety is exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. So in exposure therapy, the, the thing is you, you challenge your thinking by exposing yourself to the very thing that you're anxious about. Mm. And if what we're anxious about is our own inaction, our own, you know, fu- our own futility in the face of climate change, then the exposure we need is to start doing things, start doing small things and recording and clocking the difference we, we can make. Everyone is looking for leadership in this field. So it's not going to take much in terms of enthusiasm and taking a step forward for people to start turning to you. Mm. And whether that's, you know, offering to do, offering to do a talk and a planetary hub, if it's just, uh, if it's just going meat free or, you know, only Mm. eating meat one day a week or something like that and talking to people about why you're doing it. Um, even if it's just sending a letter to your MP explaining how how worried you are and that mm-hmm. you know you'd like to to meet them to discuss it more, those small steps will make a difference. And it's important that you you remind yourself of that and that you record the impact that you're having because that will motivate you to continue. Mm. Mm, that's great. Thank you for that. I think people will definitely be happy that you provided that um, advice and guidance after after hearing about the eco-anxiety and all the things, I think it's, it's good to know what we can do and to just, um, yeah, know that we can keep going and, and do these small things and record it and yeah, be in that feeling. And that's the thing we talk about a lot in, um, in kind of yoga and, and mindfulness and meditation is to, to let the, the, the negative feelings be there and to watch them and observe them. And then, um, they will pass, they won't take hold and then you can do something. You know, maybe then the cause of that will come up and you can start working on that thing that you're worried about. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas burying them, as you'll know from, from your own practice, Ellen, you know, burying emotions, it, it never works. No. It never works. It's what so we resist this list. Yeah. Yeah, it's very damaging in general. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think this is probably a good place to, to wrap up this episode. Um, I did really want to talk to you about the, the digital side of, of the work that you do kind of around digital health and things, but I think that might be another episode. So I might have to invite you back on another time. <laughs> well, I'd be very happy to come back. Yeah. This. Yeah. It's been great. So um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll book that in. Um, but to end this episode, then I'll ask you the, the final question that I ask everybody. Um, it's a two part question. So the first part is in your absolute dream vision of the future, what changes would you like to see people having made towards living a more purposeful and holistic life and then the second part of that is what small steps or changes can people make now if they do want to start moving in that direction i think that i think people can live a more holistic and purposeful life by being more deliberate about the story that they're telling about their life usually we we very often 
either don't have a story and we just drift through this world like like driftwood and mm. that makes us vulnerable to other people's stories about us mm. uh, all those story we tell ourselves is very damaging and i think that that fuels a lot of behaviors including importantly our our health behaviors you know the the narrative we tell ourselves about our illness and how important it is in our lives strongly impacts our recovery and the and the limitations that illness puts on us so i think i would i would strongly suggest people start thinking about what they're telling themselves at the moment about their direction of their life and start to deliberately think about about what's the story they're going to start start telling themselves I have written a, a, a blog on my website, TomWrite.com, recently about how to live how to live more meaningfully. Okay. And in that, I, I kind of suggested the first step to living a deliberate and meaningful life is to identify your values. Yep. And at the, at the end of that blog, I list um, about I think it's about ten questions that hopefully should prompt people to start identifying their values. And once you know your values, from there you can start kind of developing your your, I guess your your mission statement, your you know, your mission mm-hmm. statement for your life, your story, your your objectives, your goals, and everything kind of spills out from there. So definitely do the do the internal work, and once you know your story, it will put everything into a more aligned perspective for you. Yeah, brilliant. I'll put a link to that blog post in the show notes so people can go and read it and, and answer those questions. Um, that's really interesting that you said that actually because that's one of the big things that I do with people when I work with them and one to one um is identifying values and it always comes up and it's um always really people always find it really supportive and helpful if they've not done it already um so yeah definitely go and do that um through tom's blog so tom if people want to kind of read more of of what you write and sort of interact with you more um uh where can they find you um online Um, well, I've got, I've got the, the website that I mentioned, yeah. TomMickleWright.com, and previously I used Medium, uh-huh. uh, Tom MickleWrite, on the Medium website to host my blogs, but I'll be moving them all over to okay. my website. All right. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Mickle underscore Doc. That's M-I-C-K-L-E underscore Doc, D-O-C. And I'm also on uh, on LinkedIn as mm-hmm. Tom McRae as well. So you see, okay. follow me on either of those platforms. Fab. I'll put links to all of those in the show notes then so people can go and find you. Thank you so much for chatting to me today, Tom. Um, it's been really great. It's really interesting. Um, and yeah, probably have you back on in the future then. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show, Alan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Create Shift. I really hope you've enjoyed it. I would love to hear what you thought. Um, Find me on Instagram at being underscore change. Find me online at being-change.com where you can read blogs, find past episodes of the podcast, find the show notes for this episode so any links that you wanted will be right there. And find out more about what I do. I would really appreciate it if you did enjoy this episode, if you'd be willing to hop over to either the Apple Podcasts app, if you listen to this on an Apple device, or to iTunes, find Create Shift and leave a rating and a review. It's not just to feed my ego, I promise, although that is nice. Um, It's so that other people can find the show, because the more people who review it, the more that iTunes, Apple the powers that be will trust that it is a podcast worth listening to and show it to other people who may be interested so thank you in advance for doing that and until next time 